Imagine with me he's a little boy, although actually he's not so little now. But for this boy, this lad, life has always been hard. It's always been very hard. His family, for many years, was, was less than ideal. He thought it was normal at first, but began to realise that actually it wasn't. At times, they had glimpses of fun, precious times as a family. But he's been caught up in stuff that he ought not to be caught up in. If you dig a bit deeper, you see that both parents themselves have had that kind of a family life, as it so often does. There's this cycle of dysfunctionality that's continued and continued down the generations. It seems impossible to break out of it. And you name it, and he's done it. He's been involved in all kinds of petty crime to to raise money to fund habits for his parents, drug habits, alcohol, or simply just for the sake of it. Uh, And the school noticed, and parents started to talk, and social services got involved, and he's been taken away and placed in a new family. And against all his instincts, against his initial protests and tantrums, and and to to be honest, much to his surprise... Life is much better now. It wasn't as if there was no fun before. He was introduced to alcohol. He was introduced to the thrill of of theft and crime. He was introduced to the idea of power over other people. But now in this new family, he's experiencing a different kind of fun. A new kind of life that the reality of a constant loving family the pleasure of having his own bedroom security and structures of people being present and reliable and giving him time and a love that feels very much consistent, unconditional and so all in all he's very much happier in his new family but he's been getting texts from his old family barraging him, longing for him, pleading with him to come back, to come and help them, not just texts, but emails and phone calls and voicemails, and and he's tempted to go back. He remembers the genuinely good times, the buzz of that kind of life, the fun that he had, fun that never lasted and fun that had consequences, but fun nonetheless, and it's a battle. It seems to me that in some senses that's kind of the battle that Paul is talking about in Romans 8 for the Christian. We're new people, but the pull back to our old ways, to our old family, is still there. And if you were here last time, you'll remember that we saw we had a new mind, a new mindset, a new way of thinking. Later in the chapter, we'll see that we, have, we will have a new body. But now... Now we're not alone because we have God's spirit living in us. But now we're in a battle. And when we get the phone call from our old family, from our old way of living, telling us to come back, come and join us again, come and do the kind of stuff we used to do, when we're tempted to listen to the flesh, to go the way of the selfish self, When these phone calls come in, Paul says, don't listen. Don't listen to them. Remember two things. 
Two things to be aware of. The first one, so having the spirit means we engage in a new fight. And the second one is having the spirit means we belong to a new family. So a new fight and a new family. Firstly, having the spirit means we engage in a new fight. And what he says is living as a Christian means that we live in a battle. It is hard. Verses 12 and 13. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. And there was a time when it didn't feel like much of a battle, because it was the norm. It was all you knew. Maybe there were inklings that it wasn't the best thing for you. A bit of, well, I'd love to change. I'd love to break free from this, but I can't. But now everything is different. It is a battle. God's spirit living in you now, and you know that it is wrong. You're part of a new family. You feel the battle very acutely, consistently. And Paul says, don't listen. When the phone calls come in, ignore them. Ignore them because of who you now are. Verse 12, you don't have an obligation to the flesh anymore. You don't need to listen. You don't have an obligation, verse 12. But also, don't listen because of where it leads, verse 13. It leads to death. So the phone rings. And they say, do you remember... Life back then. Remember how good it was? It was good, wasn't it? There were good times. We can make you happy. We can, we can provide what you need. Come be a part of our family. Don't turn your back on us. Your life now, to be honest, it looks pretty boring. Pretty grey. Pretty dull. They don't want the best for you in your new family. There are rules to obey. There's fun not to be had. Don't turn your back on us. Paul, don't have an obligation to them anymore. That is not you. You're in a new family. But they will keep ringing. And they will keep texting. And they will do their best to get in contact. Over time, things might get a bit quieter. But they'll keep trying. It will be a lifelong battle until the day you die. When your old flesh is done with. And it's gone. And they might promise you life. This old family. But it's a lie. To follow the flesh says Paul. The the selfish self. However persuasive. However persistent. Actually verse 13. Do you see it leads to death. You will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. To to go that way, says Paul, leads to death. And so you need to kill your sin. It's as simple as that. And we say, well, that's just Paul being a little bit over the top, isn't he? He's a bit too zealous. A bit too excitable on these kinds of things. You can't take him too seriously. It's just... Uh, hyperbole, it's exaggeration. But then Jesus says, and if your right hand causes you to sin, 
cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Sin leads to death and so sin must be dealt with. And we say, how? Help us out here. How do we deal with our sin? How do we kill it like that? Well, firstly, Paul says, you do it and you keep on doing it. The verb to kill is an ongoing verb. You go on putting sin to death. You you do it today and you do it tomorrow. And then you do it on Tuesday. And you do it on Wednesday. And you do it every single day of your life. You keep killing it. As Jesus would say, daily we take up our cross and we follow him. It seems to me, though, the problem with our putting sin to death, our fighting sin, is if I'm honest, it's a little bit like our back garden at the moment. The bottom line is it's a mess. It needs a whole lot of work doing to it. The reality, we we simply tried to keep on top of it back in the summer. We did a bit of clearing, we did a bit of sorting. But there are some big weeds and there are some big thorns and spring is not helping. And it is growing and growing. We trimmed them back a while ago. We should have ripped them out. We should have got rid of them. But ripping them out is hard work. Trimming them back is easier, isn't it? A bit more manageable. A bit less exhausting. You get a bit less sweaty. And things look respectable. It looks okay just having stuff trimmed, not ripped out. But isn't that our lives? We've, we trim stuff back. It looks respectable. People looking in on the outside, it looks fine. Sin is kind of dealt with but not killed. It's trimmed, but it's not ripped out. And we say, well, I've not murdered anybody. I'm okay, stop judging me, mate. And Jesus says, what about that hatred in your heart? You've just trimmed it back. You've not killed it. And we say, well, well, I've not committed adultery. I've been faithful to my spouse. And Jesus says, what about those thoughts? What do you think about that person? And we say, well, I don't really covet what they have. I've got no need for a Range Rover. I don't want a house that big. What would I do with it? And Jesus says, but you do envy them. You envy how stuff has turned out for them, their salary, their spouse, their success. See what we're like? We're meant to put it to death, but we just trim it back. We quite like to just be respectable. It's a bit less painful. Things look okay, but they're not dead. Do battle with it. Kill your sin and keep killing your sin daily. And we say, but how do we do it? The roots are so deep, they're deeper than I thought. I'm I'm pulling it and there's more and there's more. And I go further and further into me. And the texts keep coming and the phone calls are there and... To be honest, when push comes to shove, I'm tempted. My old family are tempting. And you see how we're to do it in verse 13. How do we kill it? By the Spirit. 
The bottom line is we can't do it on our own. But we're not on our own. You see, we have to put it to death. That takes effort. It's hard work. But we're not doing it in our strength. We're doing it in his strength. How do we kill our sin? We kill our sin by the Spirit. If you've been here for the last few weeks or months and have been working our way through Romans, you will know that this idea of putting to flesh, sorry, putting to death the flesh, the sinful self, our sinful nature, is not a new one. Paul has been very upfront with that. Because we worked on from chapter 5 to 6 to 7. In chapter 6 he said, he said, Do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. This isn't new tonight. But it seems to me what is new is the means by which we can kill it. And it is God coming to and living in and strengthening us through his spirit. So we're in the back garden. And you lot are trying to pull out brambles. And you're sweaty and you're covered in scratches. And there's this whole pile of weeds and green stuff. And the brown box is getting full and it's looking good. It's not going to win any prizes. But you're doing a good job of trimming. It looks much better. And so you sit down. You grab a cup of tea. And you sit back up again when you finish. And you look around and it's all grown back. And then the friend comes over from next door. So I've been watching you. Um, it's not perfect. But if you tried this stuff, it's weed killer. It goes right down to the roots. It actually kills the plant. You, you might need to use it every once in a while. But it's really good stuff. It, it kills it. And so it seems to me by the Spirit we can have victory as we deal with sin. It'll be a daily thing. It'll be a bit by bit by bit by bit thing until we're out of these bodies. But Paul says we can have growth now. We can put sin to death now by his Spirit. Helping us kill sin. Battle with it. Notice, just before we move on, the paradox. Notice that those who live according to the flesh will die. And those who put to death the deeds of the body will live. Death leads to life. Life leads to death. Sin killing is not optional. Not the thing that we can say, well, that's just for the kind of keen Christians. The zealous ones. We don't have an option to choose to sign up for it. This is for everybody. If you live according to the flesh, that is ongoing, deliberate, anti-God living. Paul says it's very serious. It leads to death. Death as in separation from God forever. So his spirit living in us means that we engage in a new fight. Secondly, it means we belong to a new family. So the phone goes, and you look down at it, and you see who it is, and yet you pick it up anyway. Come and enjoy your real life. Come back. 
It's so much better over here. Do you remember the good times? Remember the fun we used to have? And Paul says, don't listen. You're part of a new family now. In fact, you have a new father now. Put the phone down. Remember who you belong to. Verse 14. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you, make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that also we may share in his glory. So who are the children of God? Verse 14. It is those who are led by the Spirit of God. And we say, what does that mean? Well, notice at the start of verse 14, you've got a four. Four, those who are led by the Spirit of God, are the children of God. And so you look back to verse 13 to see who it is he's talking about. It seems to me it's those who have offered themselves as instruments of righteousness. Those who belong to God. Those who live for him. Those who are led by the spirit of the children of God. So they're not talking about guidance here. This is not the leading he's talking about. You know, your daily life, your daily decisions. That's not what's going on. That is not the kind of led. It means you are controlled or you're governed by the spirit. He's in the driving seat. He is causing you to live for him, to obey him, to fight sin. So put the phone down. You're part of a new family now. We do things differently around here. And it's not as if we, we've just sort of snuck into the family. We're at the very bottom of the family structure. The slaves, you have no rights, no standing. No, but because of Jesus, so we're united to him, we're heirs with him. We are children, we're sons. Our standing in our family is not based on how good or lovely we are, but entirely on how good and lovely he is. And because he is so great, so we trust him and we put our faith in him. And Paul says, verse 15, we're sons. Three things to be clear on regarding this sonship. The first one is that he uses this word deliberately. And some of you say, what do, I, what do you mean I'm a son? That might be an issue because you might be a woman. It might be an issue because you're a man and you're not wanting to exclude women. And we think, how can I be a son? That makes no sense. Is Paul just a sexist? Isn't this something that the translator should have sorted out? Look, they started off well, brothers and sisters, but now it's sons. What's going on? It seems to me the language of sonship is, is used and it's been preserved. Because in the culture when Paul was writing, the son was the heir. He was the one to inherit. And so the title of being a son is about a status, a position, a standing. About being honoured. Because you're the heir. When you're adopted into the new family, you don't get the smallest bedroom. Everyone's leftovers. Your new father says, come and see. It's all yours. 
Come and see what you have. Come and join us. And the phone rings. And Paul says, don't listen. Remember who you are. Remember what you have. You have a father who loves you. You have an older brother who is your co-heir. Through him you can call the maker of the universe your father. Don't listen to them. Second thing regarding sonship is what is it we are heirs of? Verse 17, now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. And this has particularly struck me this week, actually, as I've looked at it more carefully. It's partly that we inherit God's blessings. So what Jesus won on the cross that we enjoy now is ours. We are co-heirs with Christ. What he won on the cross that we will enjoy forever, his finally consummated kingdom. The perfected kingdom we talk about, we talked about on Sunday mornings a while ago. But from the grammar, it is more than that. To be heirs of God, verse 17, as Paul puts it, it means that we inherit God. We, we get him. It's fascinating, isn't it? The best thing about the new heavens and the new earth won't be the lack of sickness, the lack of death, or that, that will be astounding. The best thing won't be the chance to see loved ones whom we miss and we cherish, although that will be glorious, beautiful. It won't be to be out of these bodies, this flesh which sins, which is anti-God. That will be liberating. That the best thing is that we get him. He is our glorious inheritance. It starts now with a relationship that's restored. It starts with his Holy Spirit living in us. But it will be better then. That's just a taster of what's to come. To be, to be heirs of God means we get him. The most precious thing in all the universe. Listen to John Piper, American pastor, talking about this. He says, the ultimate good of the gospel is seeing and savouring the beauty and value of God. God's wrath and our sin obstruct that vision and that pleasure. You can't see and savour God as supremely satisfying while you are full of rebellion against him. And he is full of wrath against you. The removal of this wrath and this rebellion is what the gospel is for. The ultimate aim of the gospel is the display of God's glory and the removal of every obstacle to our seeing it and savouring it as our highest treasure. Behold your God is the most gracious command and the best gift of the gospel. Sin is removed. His wrath is averted. And so we get him forever. The freedom we were made for. The relationship for which we were created. And that would be a great place to end a sermon, wouldn't it? Hopeful. For the week ahead, eyes lifted, warm, inspiring, fixed on the future. But then there's verse 17. There's this thorny condition that he seems to attach. Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory.
So thirdly and briefly, what does sonship look like? It means like Jesus, we suffer. We share in his sufferings. Paul is just sort of starting off a new thought that he will run with for much of the rest of the chapter. In the next few weeks or so, we'll be looking at that. So imagine you're, you're adopted into this new family and it's brilliant. And you don't listen to the phone calls. You don't listen to the texts from your old family. The family that did us such harm, that did not bring us life. But if we can stretch the analogy a bit too far, what if living in the new family was actually really hard? What if it's the best place for you, but it's not easy? What if being of this new family with this new father sets you against the world? Such that you actually suffered for being a member of this new family. That seems to me how Paul ends the little section. Just as Jesus, our, our older brother, our co-heir, suffered, so do we. So must we. That is the path, he says, that we must walk. That is the if, in verse 17, that we would rather wasn't there. And next week, Paul will tell us why, despite suffering, it is worth it. It is worth pressing on. It is worth being a part of this new family. Why we must not go back to the old one. 